Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. Today's theme is the British coast. Whether a seedy spot of faded grandeur or an idyllic escape into nature, the coast has long captured the British literary imagination. Our guest today is the writer and journalist Patrick Barkham, whose latest book, Coastline, sees him exploring the stretches of British coast owned and maintained by the National Trust and getting to the meat of our fascination with the seaside. We'll be interviewing Patrick, talking about the theme, and also giving you some book recommendations, so stay tuned. But before we get to Patrick, Octavia, can you tell us a bit about him? Yes, I can. Uh, Patrick Barkham writes about na natural history for The Guardian. Um, his first book is called The Butterfly Isles, and it was shortlisted for the 2011 Royal Society of Literature Ondaatje Prize. And his most recent book, Badgerlands, was shortlisted for the same prize in 2014, as well as the inaugural Wainwright Prize for Nature and Travel Writing. Coastlines, his latest publication, is a celebration of our shorelines published by Granta Books in April of this year to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the National Trust campaign to save the beautiful British coast. So now that you've listened to uh, us saying how great you are, Patrick, thank <laughs> you for coming on and joining us here. Thank you for having me. And we have asked you to start with a short reading, so could you just set it up before you start? Sure. This is a reading about Skulthead Island, which is an uninhabited island on the North Norfolk coast. It's a bewitching place of empty, tawny sand dunes, and it was one of the first places that was bought and protected by the National Trust back in 1923. The early naturalists persuaded the National Trust to buy Skolt because of its colonies of terns, the chalk-winged creatures that nest in their thousands on the island's sandbanks and a warden has protected these birds from foxes and human thieves ever since. Emma Turner, the nature reserve's first watcher, caused a sensation in 1924 when she took up residence in the newly built wooden hut on the island. It was an unusual job for a woman, and Miss Turner was a singular person. Alfred Steers, a Cambridge professor who studied Skolt for 65 years, once found her in the sand dunes, engaged in pistol practice, apparently so she could protect herself from unsavoury characters. The most unsavoury character to visit, however, was a gentleman from Fleet Street who dubbed the spinster ornithologist the loneliest woman in England for her solitary vocation to protect the island's turn colonies. Other journalists followed in a bewildering stream, recalled Miss Turner in her memoirs, till in desperation I said to the ferryman, drown the next. Whatever the ferryman did, it worked, for the unwelcome visit ceased. Great. Well, I think that uh, excerpt gives a very good sense of the book in that you're exploring the places in quite lyrical prose, but also there's a sense of humor and uh, and just great stories and great characters. So uh, let's talk a bit first about Skullhead Island, which you just described. It was a place that you had vacationed with your parents when you were younger. Yeah, it was a sort of bit of an amazing coincidence, really, in that my first childhood holidays by the sea were spent on this uninhabited island, Skullhead Island, which my parents managed to wangle a family holiday there every Whitson bank holiday sort of holiday for um, from when I was two till when I was five and so I had very distant memories of this island and we hadn't been back since I was five years old so uh, writing this book was a chance for me to sort of rediscover uh, my childhood island if you like which was kind of magical. 
although it's quite a bleak place and your memories of it weren't exactly the idyllic, happy memories that maybe somebody would think someone would have of the coast. Yeah, I do. I mean, I do think that a lot of us have a great passion for the coast and for beaches and for the sea because we have so many happy memories of childhood holidays pottering around on the shingle or the sand or whatever. But it did suddenly having children of my own and seeing their discomfort on the beach as very young toddlers reminded me that actually, yeah, my early memories weren't so happy either. And this Scotland Island, there's there's no toilet facilities that your your, your little bare legs as a child get whipped by the marron grass the sand's always blowing on the beach so it blows into your eyes so there was that sort of physical discomfort and um but gradually i think every almost every child if 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 they don't learn to love the coast by themselves they're sort of indoctrinated to love it by their parents you know sort of you you see these grandparents and parents instructing their children in sandcastle building and so on and so i think through this we often form a almost unbreakable attachment to the seaside. Yeah, it's really interesting. You talk in the book about how it's a liminal space (coughs) and this idea, like you say, parents and grandparents, it's something that we return to periodically in our lives and it kind of occupies, it's like a punctuation, isn't it? The beach holiday, whether it's in Mm. your own country or you go somewhere else. And I loved actually the, the sense of disappointment that you that you get from you in the book when your kids aren't enjoying it. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. it's true. It's that thing as a little child when you've when you've had quite a comfortable time, and you get to the coast and it is raw and ragged, and sand in your sandwiches and everything. But Scott Head, made, I mean, one of the things I loved about reading coastlines is it really made me want to visit lots of places that I have never been. Yeah. And Skull Head Island is one of them. I you know, but it sounds like it's quite difficult to get there these days. Well, if you're if you're in North London, the first step is to go to the Skull Head pub. Just <laughs> yeah, just 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 near Islington and Dalston and, and that's got a lovely sign with an oyster catcher and that kind of gives you almost a flavour. It's of actually it. my local <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's go back to the book itself. What was the genesis behind the idea for the for the book? Well, I, I was very lucky, really, and I, I sort of feel almost slightly embarrassed admitting this, but it wasn't an idea of my own. It was something that, that came to me, which is a kind of lovely gift, and someone suggested to our publisher doing some kind of story book about the sea to coincide with this very interesting anniversary the 50th anniversary of the national trust neptune campaign which really did save so much of the british coastline from development and destruction the national trust is now by far our biggest coastal landowner it owns 742 miles of our coast and this isn't just the sort of twee or beautiful places that we might imagine it's often pollution wrecked beaches and old military installations and lots of very fascinating places so the sort of idea came to me but then as, a, as an author you kind of fear the coast is very well trodden territory and we see it on telly all the time as well so I then tried to make it my own I suppose in terms of creating an idea and I wanted to look at how we relate to the coast at different stages of our lives so I looked at coast and childhood as we've discussed but also coast and romance and falling in love and then how we relate to the coast in adulthood through themes of work and war and spiritual questing and artistic creation and then why so many of us seek to return to the coast in retirement and at the end of our lives and what we're seeing in the sea what solace we're finding so I sort of structured it thematically rather than me just sort of wandering around the coast and and hopefully that's made an interesting book hope so i'd say so (laughs) thank you (laughs) although there is a lot of wandering as well which must have been a real joy yeah it was really nice and i did i did find that as and i'm sure many other writers of, of of place would say the same that you absolutely have to inhabit a place for 
well, at least 24 hours. And I always tried to sleep as close as I could to the sea because you want to see a place in all its different moods at kind of 5 a.m. and at 10 p.m. in the evening and to get a sense of it. Obviously, even 24 hours is not enough to get to know a place, but I think it's it's the sort of bare minimum. So I tried to kind of loiter and hang out on the coast as much as I could. I love how you were always talking your way into places that you shouldn't have been and sleeping in, in buildings that you weren't allowed to sleep in. Yeah. That was yeah. fun. Like it, like the Cobra Mist building yes. was fascinating. Can yes. you talk a bit about that? Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you raised that because that is my favorite place, actually. As a sort of journalist and someone who's interested in stories, I just, I'm always wanting to find a good story. And that's why I focused on the areas that I ended up writing about. There's lots of places I visited that I ended up not writing about, but you have to be fairly selective. But Orford Ness is this um, shingle peninsula off the coast of Suffolk, and for 83 years of the 20th century, it was a secret site prohibited to everyone under the Official Secrets Act, apart from the military personnel who worked there, and they, and they conducted a whole series of experiments right from the First World War. They were looking at the production of artificial clouds right back then, amazing stuff, and then they were testing uh, triggers on atomic weapons and all kinds of fairly sinister Cold War experiments. But the, the most sinister place of all on Orford Ness, it was, it was um, sold by the Ministry of Defence to the National Trust in the 1990s. It had lain derelict, unused after the sort of fading of the Cold War. But the most sinister building of all, and the Trust haven't cleaned it up. They've not sort of made it pretty. That you, you can't buy cream tea there. You know, it's, it's just desolation and sort of ruin old buildings. And, but the most sinister place of all is this enormous shed called Cobra Mist, which was a over-the-horizon experimental radar station, joint operation between US spooks and British spooks. And it appears that it never worked. But for some reason, it's still owned by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office today. And when I visited, it's, it's maintained by this old, lovely old Suffolk man who's a caretaker. And, and he happened to be inspecting it on the day I sort of turned up. And he very kindly showed me around. And it was the most spooky place ever it's this desolate old building and the architecture is just redolent of the paranoia of the cold war era and there's all these secret rooms and sort of areas that had special sort of um, anti-contamination zones and and secret sort of spy areas where people could keep an eye on each other and all of this sort of thing. It's a really, really sinister place. And then there was this lovely old Suffolk man showing me around, just going, this place is just crying out for someone to come and do secret stuff in it again, you know, and just kind of, it's this wonderful juxtaposition of a very English comedy and spooky international spying. Yeah, you you talk about, I mean, that, it sounds astonishing, actually. <laughs> as, as you were talking, I'm thinking like, I bet they're still doing experiments there and we have no idea. Um, it made me think of another hidden space that you investigate in the book in Dover where you go down the hole. And that, I was, I mean, that was like a horror film, that bit where you're going down this hole in the cliffs and you don't know what's going to be there. And um, it made me think of another point that you make about the fact that in the Garden of Eden, there's no ocean and how, you know, the sea and the ocean is actually a frightening force and the edge of a country is a frightening space to be because it's that again that liminality of you know the great primordial soup that is the sea coming and you know making our feet wet and filling us full of fear um but in contrast to fear i wanted to talk about smut <laughs> because <laughs> the passion section was probably my favorite part of the book and um and when I think of the English coast, I think of smut. I think of naughty postcards and uh, penny arcades and all of that. Um, and I just, I wondered, I wanted to ask you a bit more about that and why you think that is the predominant 
image of the British coast when actually there's all these other fascinating elements as well. The, the it might be your predominant. <laughs> Sorry, uh-huh. I, don't, I, I don't think I think of smart. I think of like derelict fading Victorian piers and weird arcades. But but let's talk about smart. <laughs> yeah, it's a great British seaside yeah. tradition, and and we are we do tend to forget we're in the sort of third century of this great love affair and passion for the beach and the seaside, and and it wasn't always thus exactly as you said, and and by far the prevalent um, view of the coast ju- uh, in, the, in the Christian tradition ever since the Old Testament was to was to fear and loathe it. And it was exactly that. It was an instrument of divine punishment. It was a symbol that God's work was unfinished on earth and so forth. And so and so we feared and, and, and despised it right until the 18th century. And then two things happened. And one was that romantics suddenly started glorying in the kind of horror of the sea and, and, and seeing that as a... As that that liminal space is being a very creative space and and we're sort of prepared to embrace fear and use it for creative ends so we had the kind of romantics making the sea beautiful and immense and horrific but enjoyable and pleasurable but we also had the doctors of the 18th century um, prescribing sea bathing as being the that was the kind of wonder cure of the the 18th century for all our physical and mental ailments and so the aristocracy were getting this message both from quacks and doctors the medical profession the sort of rational message and the poetic message and I, I think it's more the health craze that then set off the British association of the seaside with smut because because people were suddenly sea bathing and doing fairly risque things and and incredibly we associate the Victorian era with prudishness but um, bathing in the nude was common practice for much of the Victorian era for for men and women Admittedly, they were fenced off from each other, but but there'd be a lot of ogling going on, and and there's several fascinating examples of, of French journalists and French writers who came and observed this extraordinary tradition of the prudish, uptight Brits suddenly um, bec- going to the other extreme by the coast, and you sort of, I guess that it, those inhibitions have sort of gone that disparity, and that we see people sort of sunbathing in their knickers and pants in in London parks these days and people are much more on display in a way that they weren't um, 100 or 200 years ago but but there's still that thing that by the by the sea the Brits tend to let go of their inhibitions and and and, and maybe there is still I don't know maybe there's something um, about um, us rebelling and and you know against a convention and, and, and the seaside is still seen as a place where we can be free and 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 certainly it's a place where where children can be free and play freely and I think adults get some of that infectious sort of sense of freedom from it and and you know I still think the Brits are a little bit repressed and so maybe that does come out a bit more by the sea and I mean until until there's that famous sort of um sort of thing that that um, a weekend in Brighton could be used as proof of adultery and divorce that, cases. Exactly, that was yeah. what I was thinking of. Fascinating. Amazing. And Brighton continues to be a city with yeah. this reputation of being yeah. hedonistic yeah. and, you know, full of all kinds of yeah. naughty treats. And the Carry On films as well. I don't know, Carrie, you probably don't know about these being a, an immigrant. <laughs> but they were very smutty sort of sex comedy films from the 70s, 60s and 70s. Um, and lots of them set by the sea with Barbara Windsor's bra flying off and, you know, Benny Hill style. Not very poetic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, I also wanted to ask you about some of the characters that you turn up in the book. Some of them historical, like the bright young things 
and their polyamorous kind of relationships and trysts in Anglesey. And then some, you know, real human people from today, like the romantic figure of, of the fisherman Nori Duggan and the artist Maggie Hambling. Um, and did you did you have a favourite character that you came across in your research? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I wouldn't want to single out many. I mean, everyone sort of, uh, Maggie Hamlin's a public figure, and I sort of knew before I went to interview her that she would be good value and tremendously entertaining, but also insightful about the way that painters look at the sea. And she, um, I, I asked her, why did she choose to paint the North Sea when it's so grey? And she, she said, well, as a writer, I wouldn't expect you to see colour. She's like, go and look again. Go and look again at the North Sea and tell me what you see. It's it's not brown or grey. It's full of colour. It's bronze, you know. And uh, So now I think of the North Sea as bronze. So she was great. But, yeah, Norrie Duggan, who you mentioned, who was this lovely fisherman from Northern Ireland. And it was hard to kind of... His stories didn't necessarily translate into funny stories on the page somehow, but it was the way he told them. And he was... Um, he... he, he had a passing acquaintance with Elvis during his time in America and he'd sort of traded on this throughout his life and he just told this lovely story of going down the street and people asking um, asking who was that guy with Elvis you know it was Norrie the fisherman you know and he just just had ways of telling stories and and he, he was absolutely lovely yeah it was it was people like that who really make the book and I guess I guess I'm as interested in people more interested in people than than in almost in describing the natural world you know and I love to describe people within their environments and where they often make sense um, particularly when they're in interesting places and the sort of place in the person kind of talk to each other in a kind of nice way and some of the wonderful characters in this book come from the National Trust which we tend to think of as quite a fusty organization but actually has a Super fascinating history, and also the the creation of the Neptune um, program and their preservation of the coastline is is also a really amazing story that you weave throughout the book. Can you talk about about how that happened and the fascinating people involved? Yeah, you're dead right. And when we think about the National Trust, we think about cream teas and stately homes and kind of old fuddy duddies. And yet, the National Trust grew out of this very radical movement to save the Commons of London. And um, and it's 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 founder um, one of its four founders, Octavia Hill, was very interested. Octavia was very excited in, about her yeah, as a character. Yeah, and she was so cool because she was the eighth child, I think, of Mr. Hill. So, um, but she was extremely radical and believed passionately that working people must have access to what she called open air sitting rooms. And we we now have this debate today about the public health benefits of green spaces and she was kind of having that 150 years ago and then the trust uh, had this sort of it was waylaid if you like by stately homes and the need to preserve them between the war when a lots were being demolished but after the war it turned its attention to the coast and um, its its program there was quite radical in terms of buying up bits of coastline and sometimes being quite almost sneaky to do so and kind of working out doing little crafty little deals to get bits of coast and save them and and it, it saved the polluted coast of Durham which um, which most people don't even know that Durham has a coastline and there were uh, these enormous coal mines on the coast which followed seams of a coal underneath the North Sea and they dumped all the coal tailings on the beaches and the beaches were literally black as late as the 1980s and the National Trust bought these up and has helped clean them up and return um, the natural environment often recovers from human destruction much more quickly than we expect and mm -hmm. this coastline is now glorious but still 
pretty unvisited. So, so the National Trust did some quite progressive things. And, and the coastline, it is a sort of, it's a very British solution to a conundrum. It's not been natural nationalized it's a it's a charity has saved it and it is under law it's open to everyone freely forever so it really is our contemporary common land by the sea and it's often we don't realize it's protected by the national trust because they're terribly british and they don't like to shout about it and there's tiny little signs and you know but this wonderful landscape that is unspoiled for want of a better word i i, I you know the Trust has a reputation for being aesthetic snobs, but in many cases they, they do a wonderful job of preserving the coast and, and, and the landscape inland from the coast. So you get these wonderful vistas and you can walk freely along by the sea and enjoy it. We sort of believe it's our right to get to a beach, and yet there's no such right in British law. We have, we could be, you know, beaches can be private, we can be turfed off, the Crown Estates could assume we've not got a right to the coast. So... But it's thanks to charities like the National Trust and also the RSPB and others that we've got this coastline that we can enjoy. That was quite a sinister revelation for me that the Crown Estates own most of the coastline and also the water next to the coast. And they're also instructed in law to make a profit from it. So they have to make money from it. So um, the Crown Estates is responsible for um, for offering up our seabed to um, offshore wind farms and for gravel extraction and so forth. So they're compelled to make money from it, which is not necessarily great for conservation. Yeah, and I was really interested in your discussion of whether nature should have a use. A lot of the terms that um, ecologists are forced to use today are sort of in the capitalist mode. But, but even so, there's a much less sinister idea of use is that we derive happiness and pleasure and we like looking at vistas. But um, many people like John Fowles, the author who you talk about, have, have argued that even that sense of nature as, as something that's there for a purpose rather than something in itself uh, is dangerous and um, is sort of narcissistic. So w what's your view on that? Yeah, I think I, I'm glad you raised that actually because it is a fascinating debate in conservation today. There's this, there's this very influential movement now, um, talking about natural capital and and saying that we have to price every bit of nature to engage politicians and economists with trying to save it, and otherwise these things just won't be saved. But it is, it, it's, it's. I fear that because it is reductive and it's dangerous. And and if 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 something hasn't got a obvious economic use or you can't put a price on it, like what? How can you price the value of a butterfly? Or, or the, use, um, the example I use in coastlines is, how can you put a price on an empty horizon? And to me, an empty horizon is, is of incalculable value to people's mental health, the kind, of, um, the kind of solace you can find in looking at an unindustrialized horizon. And, and I'm, I'm very much in favor of wind farms and wind turbines, but to cover every empty horizon in wind turbines, I think we would lose something of incalculable value. Do you think that there's something in that idea that we shouldn't frame nature even in terms of what is valuable to us? Or is that just too difficult to argue? I think it's really useful actually to have it in our armory, to, to, to be pragmatic and to be able to make economic cases for nature. But I do think that we constantly need artists and poets and people like John Fowles making making the case for beauty and for and for just nature in itself and for the integrity of species and landscapes that has nothing to do with us and no use for us. But but personally I do think it could be quite useful to 
frame nature in terms of its health benefits, um, particularly mental health benefits. And, and that, for me, is a slightly net less noxious way of making economic arguments for nature and, and saying, look, we can see and we can start to prove the benefits to mental health and, and, and to public health and physical health to, to have green spaces and empty horizons and so forth. And, and I do think it's, it's too useful an argument to let go of, but we also need the artists to keep making that argument just for beauty. Yeah, I really agree, especially the points you're making about mental health. And I think it's this strange thing when people are very become very urbanized, they feel that the urban experience is natural and then the, the na natural spaces become like parentheses. And we think that we are granting nature the gap in a way when actually we're the parentheses in nature. That's what came first and that's what's authentic to the planet. Um, and I agree with you so much that there needs to be more emphasis placed on how important that is to human experience, to be engaging with the natural world. Um, and yes, exactly, writers and authors and, and artists and sculptors, they can really bring that alive for people. Um, and actually, it's something that I, I enjoyed the most about Coastlines is that it's a very lyrically written book for a non-fiction piece. And um, that really drew me into it. That really sort of connected for me. Um, and I wondered if there were any authors in particular who've inspired you in your kind of style of writing or other nature writers that were inspirational? Yeah, um, I, I sort of grew up on, um, on literature rather than nature writing, and, and I shouldn't really admit this, but when I wrote my first book, Butterfly Isles, I'd not read anything in the sort of nature writing canon, and, um, and what I ended up writing was probably something that would slot quite neatly into it, and people probably thought I'd just sort of copied a load of other similar books because it was very similar to some of the other books that were written but um, just writing about the coast and reading other people's writing about the coast you really see who the brilliant writers are and when you read Joseph Conrad on the sea and trying to describe the sea is like uh, to me as a writer is as hard as trying to paint it it's really difficult to describe it well and Ronald Blythe is another writer who's who's not very well known but um, is uh, the brilliant author of Aikenfield, which was a study of a Suffolk village, and he's he's very much inhabits the um, East Anglia, and he's in his 80s now. But he he wrote a lovely memoir, only only very recently published, that um, describes being by the sea. I think more beautifully than almost anything I've read recently. A beautiful, understated sort of lyricism about the sea. But in terms of uh, in terms of modern contemporary nature writing, I mean, I don't think you get any better than Robert McFarlane. I think he's a colossus in, in, his, in his writing and he's almost too brilliant. I, I try not to read too much of him in case I end up being a pale imitation of his work. But, um, but I mean, there's lovely, there's lovely nature writers too, but um, I, I sort of hope I manage to tell stories as well as, but thank you for your words about lyricism because I certainly like. D.H. Lawrence just said, um, described the Atlantic as all peacock mingle colour and it's that kind of, oh, that sort of phrase. When you, when you see something like that, you realise, yeah, D.H. Lawrence was an amazing writer. But um, yeah, I certainly, I, I take a lot of inspiration from 20th century writers like, like Lawrence and John Fowles and, and Virginia Woolf and people like that. Well, let's end on that beautiful D.H. Lawrence quote. Patrick Barkham, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. For um, the book is called Coastlines and it's out in hardback now from Granta.
Well, after that wonderful interview, let's talk about the uh, British coast more generally in literature. So why is the British coast a place of fascination? We talked a little bit about this with Patrick, the idea of an island surrounded by the sea, um, the idea of the smuttiness and how the Victorians and their romantics kind of changed our perspective. What, but what do you think, Octavia? I think it's something to do with the fact that the coast is so varied and there's, a, you know, a British fascination and obsession with weather because it's so changeable and we, we really do experience all of the seasons and there's nothing more elemental than being on, a, on the beach at the edge of the sea when it's you know, fire and brimstone, thunderstorms, and then it, the clemency that comes afterwards when the, the, the clouds move away. It's a very uh, theatrical and um, poetic experience, I think. So I think, uh, you know, it's ripe for writing about, definitely. And I also think it's an experience that, it's a way of reaching a commonality with your reader because, you know, we've all experienced the coast. And as we were talking about with Patrick, it's this recurring theme in, in life. You know, you go to the coast as a child on holidays because you can let your kids run free and, and get wet and do all that stuff. And then you return as an old person to take the air and everything. So it, it occupies this sort of, um, I don't know, like in the, in the group unconscious, it occupies a very special space. So it's quite easy to access somebody's emotions by going there, if you, if you, if you get my meaning. Yeah, and one of the points that Patrick makes in the book is uh, the British, fancy themselves a, a, a nation of seafaring people but they're not really and and no, many, land people <laughs> <laughs> many people don't live near the sea and and the fact that london is is actually you know it's on a river but it's, it's nowhere near the sea really um means that actually the sea ends up being this nostalgic place really um and a place that's romanticized because it's not something that people are interacting with every day it's it's somewhere they go and it's somewhere they go on holiday and it's somewhere they experience every year and then take a sort of a nugget away with them in a very wordsworthian way back to their normal lives and so um when writers are writing about the sea i think they're tapping into that that fascination and that love and that romanticism and, and the sort of unreality of our own vision of the sea. Mm. And also because in, in England, we don't have urban centers that are coastal, you know, so it's a space that's other to the urban experience. Whereas, you know, Sydney in Australia is a seaside city. Um, or and Boston, where I'm from. Or Boston, mm -hmm. where you're from, exactly. So there are other, you know, in countries that have, let's say, maybe more temperate climates for <laughs> more, more of the year. Um, I don't know exactly why that is, actually, that we wouldn't have a big city on a uh, on a coastal space. Because, uh, well, it was unsafe. It was unsafe, yeah. Um, and and, and newer cities mm. didn't have the same fear, the I suppose. Threat. I might be Seaside proven totally invasion. wrong about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to put a question to you, which isn't to do with books, but it's to do with my... What do you think about places like Blackpool, for instance, where... To me, I just never got it. I don't understand it. I go there. Everyone's miserable. It's windy. <laughs> it's raining. Um, hey. There are these like weird piers with strange entertainments and everyone's sort of licking a, a gross ice cream trying to make themselves feel better. Is this just because I'm going to... We're going to lose a lot of Twitter followers after this <laughs> conversation. But, but convince me why that is somehow special and interesting. Well, I've never been to Blackpool. Um, but I have been to Hastings <laughs> and I have been to Brighton and other other places that are doing a similar sort of thing. I think uh, 
yeah, I, I think it is probably quite a horrible reality for a foreigner <laughs> to come and see and see how deprived we are. Actually, I've got a, an Australian friend who went on a beach walk recently in a cagoule and there were photographs of it on Facebook and her friends back in Australia were like, we had no idea you were so deprived. Are you okay? And all her English friends were writing on her Facebook, well, that looks like such a great day. So, you know, yeah, I guess it probably is quite miserable. I have a very nostalgic attachment to all of that misery. Um, being a Brit through and through. Um, I think, I think, it well, it's Blackpool Pleasure Beach, isn't it? I mean, this is the thing. Again, this, these coastal towns as being sites of licentiousness and pleasure and penny machines, which, you know, it's like our version of Vegas, I guess. You put your 1p in and you get 100 1p's out and uh, that game with the claw where you never win the bunny rabbit. And um, I don't think I could ever convince you that they were beautiful. But I think I could convince you, if I took you, I think I could convince you that w there was something, there was some fun to be had. I mean, Coney Island is similar. Mm. It's just hotter in the summer. And maybe there's something there, actually, that it's not very beautiful, that it's complicated. Yeah, and yeah. And that is the stuff of great literature. It's, it is. And it's hard, you know, it's really hard to talk about this with, without talking about class. And it's a minefield to go there. But there is a thing about social class and the seaside. And, um, you know, people who have more financial and social freedom, it being somewhere that they can visit and then leave. And it being somewhere that, you know, those, those coastal towns are never wealthy. They're not prosperous in the same way as the urban centers. Um, and their, their trades are, you know, fishing, which is not gonna make you a load of money. And then this tourist industry that is kind of mainly internal tourism, you know, it's not like people coming from the beautiful southern beaches in France to go and have fun on Blackpool Pier. <laughs> Um, so there is, you know, there's this idea, it, I suppose, yes, this thing about tourism and it being a space that you visit and then you leave. Um, and what we were talking about in our interview with Patrick about um, Brighton having this space in everyone's unconscious as this, you know, dodgy, sexy place where you can go and well, be... Graham Greene used that. In and Brighton Graham Greene used that, Rock. exactly. And in if Brighton you think Rock, about uh -huh. most books set in Brighton, um, they, they take advantage of that seediness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and there's something fascinating about that seediness. These seedy ghettos. <laughs> and then you can go and bathe in the salt water and clean yourself off and come home and put your suit back on, go back to work in London. I don't know, it's, it, it's, it's worth investigating, I think. Yeah, so let's talk about um, how the British coast is represented in the literary imagination in particular. Um, so we've been tossing around all of these ideas, but um, I was thinking about Pole dark, actually, which, yes. <laughs> which good old I pole haven't, dark. Uh, I haven't read. I have to admit, um, I've just seen. I haven't finished TV it. Series. I've read, but not all. Yeah, it's but a big. There's something. <laughs> I mean, the sea is so important in that, mm. um, and it is linked to this burly, muscly male figure. Mm. I think that's not um, you know, one of the chapters in um, coastlines is about romance and there's something about the sea that's very lusty well there is and again the thing with Poldark is that it's this it's this suffering um, coastal community the mining community that the mine's been you know shut down and people are starving um, and it allows Poldark who is of noble birth essentially to have this relationship with Demelza who is a scullery maid or you know she she's of, of not of the same kind of standing and it's allowed to happen because they're in this desperate situation in this liminal space on the coast. And there's a lot of descriptions of them, you know, running along the coastline and 
Cornwall is an extraordinarily beautiful place and very remote. Parts of it feel incredibly remote. Um, and there's the exploitation of that as well, you know, that they're in this kind of, it's, it's, it's like these characters in this forgotten part of the country and it's, it's so cut off from the rest of, the rest of England. Um, and remains that way, yeah. <laughs> which I love. I love Cornwall for that yeah. very reason. And you're talking about how the coastline sort of echoes their relationship, and I think it's important to point out that the coast is often used as pathetic fallacy. Um, the that it's such a dramatic space that it's a great place to reflect the drama of of humans and and how they interact with each other. Yeah, exactly. And characters reaching the edge of reason at the edge <laughs> yeah. of the country, you know. And Patrick talks about the French lieutenant's woman, which is a, it's a wonderful example of that, of transgression and drama mm. um, that's only really allowed to happen in this really wild place, the Undercliffs in, in Lyme Regis. Mm, I haven't read it. I'm desperate to. Isn't that the book that Terry Stiasny recommended at the end of yeah, my last interview? Yeah, so yeah, it's a great link. Yeah. And Patrick knows Sarah Perry, so hey. keep <laughs> us going. Um Let's talk about our favorite books about the coast. Um, do you want to start? Sure thing. Um, so my choice is a little bit off-piste. It's not a novel. Um, it's more of a poetic pamphlet, um, but it's something that has stayed with me ever since I read it a, a, about a couple of years ago. It's called Longustine Fragments of a Philosophical Marine Romance by George Surtees, who's a Hungarian-born but British poet um, who's based in Norfolk. And uh, I think he's such a, a wonderful writer in everything that he does. I'm a bit of a fangirl. Um, and Longustine, it emerged out of him playing with Twitter as a medium. Um, and he, he calls it Twitterature. And so he, he writes fragments that are 140 characters. And he was, you know, tweeting these characters and they emerge. So there's a doctor, um, a crabby doctor, and a Longustine who was initially called Scampi, and then he decided she was actually just called Longestine, which I, I'm quite relieved about. Um, and I have a bit of a thing for lobsters. It's a running theme in my life. Uh, so I was very drawn to it. Um, and it's this conversation between the Doctor and the Longestine. They talk about literature and philosophy and being and becoming um, at the bottom of the North Sea. And he manages to bring up big philosophical ideas with a really healthy dose of absurdism and humor, um, which makes it very accessible. And I'm actually just in awe of, of the discipline to write this, this, this little tiny pamphlet in fragments that are exactly 140 <laughs> characters each. Um, there are over 300 tweets involving these two characters, so Longestine is a fragment of a fragment, essentially. Um, and it's funny, and it's wise, and it's published by Miel, which is a small independent press, um, and they promote what they identify as difficult, innovative, intelligent, and deeply felt writing and visual art. And I think it's always good to support independent presses where you can. Um, so yeah, go out, go out and buy it. I'm so skeptical of Twitterature, but this sounds like the way to do it. He is the, he is the master of the medium, I would say. Although I have to say I'm a little wary of accepting your lobster book recommendations <laughs> because the last time you gave me <laughs> a book to read about a lobster, I fainted on the tube after a scene in which um, a girl tries to get a lobster to give her an orgasm and then she wakes up in a pool of clotted blood between her legs. It's a very romantic but it was story. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very romantic story. Okay, 
Well, um, my recommendation is quite different. Um, well, except it's it's in the experimental vein, but in the sort of canonized experimental vein. And I know I talk about Virginia Woolf all the time, but... I have no problem with that. Yeah, I know. Me neither, really. <laughs> but um, uh, when I was thinking about books about the coast and about the sea, I, th I thought instantly of To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. Um, Patrick was talking about how difficult it is to write about the sea, and I think Wolf is one of those writers who just understands it, both the rhythm that you need to express the way that waves crash against each other mm. and the multifarious um, forms that the sea can take. On every page of this book, the sea is a different thing, um, and, and understanding that mutability is, is part of why she gets it so right. Um, but to the lighthouse um, set, in a summer house on the Isle of Skye. Um, and I thought especially of um, this sort of beautiful elegiac section in the middle of the book called Time Passes, in which this family, the Ramses, and all of the people who are staying with them have left the house. Um, and the house is left to the devices of the natural world, and it, it completely deteriorates. And actually, exactly as you were talking about, human events are literally put in parentheses. So, and some quite tragic things happen. I think two of the, of the children in the family die, and um, Mrs. Ramsey, who's, who's really the hero of the book, dies as well. But this is all parenthetical um, during this really beautiful description of how the house deteriorates and the copper rusts and mm. um, the frogs walk into the house. And... Um, and it's just a masterful description of, of nature and the way that nature overwhelms us, which I think is, is the feeling that the coast gives to us and, and one of the reasons we seek it out in the first place. Absolutely. And it takes it back from us because we only borrowed it. That's the thing. We only borrowed the space, you know. Yeah. So we'll be back in a little bit with our book recommendations and Patrick is going to give his as well. This is the segment where we talk about our book recommendations for the month. I guess I'll start. Um, this month, I am recommending a book called Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, which was published this year and, and I think was shortlisted for a number of awards. So it's um, definitely not uh, under the radar, but uh, so many people had recommended it to me that I felt that I needed to read it, and I'm, I'm so glad I did. Um, Emily St. John Mandel is a Canadian author, and this is her fourth novel. 
And the premise is that the world has all but ended after a terrible pandemic, which they call the Georgian flu, which I felt was sort of terribly unfair to Georgia because I looked at it with this sort of skeptical gaze after reading the novel. But um, the few humans that have survived eke out an existence in communities at gas stations and in shopping malls, um, surrounded by the relics of the former world, um, like, you know, they have little, they have mobile phones that don't work and none of the cars work anymore and computers don't turn on and the lights don't turn on. Um, and the novel follows a band of actors and musicians called the Traveling Symphony who travel by horse-drawn carriage from town to town performing Shakespeare. I didn't find everything about this novel successful. I wasn't as intrigued, for instance, by some of the backstory sections about this famous actor, blah, blah, blah. But what I did find when I finished it, I was just so bereft that I had to leave the world. I just, it was so evocative and so sad and so moving. Um, and I spent days afterwards sort of examining my own world in a changed way, sort of as an alien who steps down into earth and sees everything as strange and starts to question my own reality and what I believe in it. And ultimately, it's, it's a very powerful statement about the importance of art and things that are worth living for. And also just a really pacey read. I, I would recommend it to anyone. You'll read it quickly. And it, it's just a very beautiful thought experiment. That's making me desperate to read a novel. <laughs> so I've been reading a lot of nonfiction lately, which I really love, but I miss that, that feeling of being bereft when you have to leave somebody's universe. Um, my recommendation is nonfiction. Um, it's called The Land Where Lemons Grow by Helena Attlee. And uh, it was given to me by, by a friend, and I don't think I would have picked it up of my own accord. Um, Did I give that to you? No, actually, the people who do my organic vegetable box delivery <laughs> gave it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really want to say that on the radio. Thanks, growing communities. You guys are the best. Um, anyway, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily have picked it up, but I'm so pleased that I am reading it. Um, because it's beautifully written, it's so vivid, um, the way that she describes Italy. And I spent a lot of time in Italy a couple of years ago. And she kind of takes you on this journey via history, art, food. It's punctuated by these amazing sounding little recipes, um, which I would love to try one day when I'm a bit more confident <laughs> in my kitchen. Um, but she kind of drops in these morsels of local history and then personal anecdote. And it's quite a good pairing for coastlines, actually. It's sort of doing a similar thing, mixing memoir and history and, and journeys. Um, and yeah, it, you can kind of sense it's almost like you can smell the lemons on, on every page. Um, and it's very good. I mean, this morning was so blustery and gray and I opened it and felt like I was on the Mediterranean again. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting enjoying nonfiction quite so much because um, I read so much of it for work, but reading it for pleasure at the same time. It's, I'm having a different relationship with literature at the moment, which I'm enjoying. Um, so, yeah, I would recommend it, especially if you're planning on a trip to Italy. You'll learn a lot and it's not your usual travel story. Patrick, can we have your recommendation? Wow, yeah. I'm suddenly wishing that I sh could be reading a novel right now and, and just realising after having grown up with just reading novels that I, too, just read non-fiction these days. And I, I heard on Radio 4 Sarah Hall's The Wolf Border about rewilding in 
the Lake District, which is just a great subject for a novel, and I really want to read that. But the book that I would recommend is by Peter Maron, and it's called Rainbow Dust, and it's actually not out yet. It's coming out in July, and it's a kind of history of humans and butterflies, kind of cultural history throughout the I centuries. I see why you may have picked that up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the first. This is suddenly, this is a great... Um, boom year for books about butterflies the three sort of non-fiction books about people and butterflies coming out this year and it, they're the first ones really since my book back in 2010 and so I was interested to see how these books were on a subject I know really well but Peter's just a wonderful naturalist and storyteller and also historian and he just digs down and finds these amazing stories about I didn't realize that there was such a long cultural tradition of fearing butterflies and sort of su fascinating superstitions around the red admiral butterfly which is this very vivid black and red butterfly that's considered a portent of doom in many countries and was and was said to have predicted a great famine in Russia because you can actually see the dates of this famine on its wings um, 1886, I think I'm right in saying, and and there's this so there's there's these fascinating cultural histories behind butterflies, and of course the whole weird and eccentric and slightly going back to John Fowles again, who wrote a book called The Collector about this creepy butterfly collector. The history of of mainly men who collected butterflies is both slightly creepy but also fascinating, and and it's interesting to reflect on how we have a much more detached kind of hands off relationship with nature these days. But it's a wonderful book it's lyrical it's beautifully written and it's it's rich in the sort of history of and the research of a guy who's just kind of lived and breathed butterflies and nature for all his life did it change the way you thought about butterflies it made me it made me um look again at certain butterflies and i'd certainly never considered this one butterfly the red admiral to be evil to be so, something vaguely doomy about it so it's it does knowing the cultural history of these species it does sort of, sort of enrich your experience of them when you see them in the real world so yeah and Great. then you, and then you dream about butterflies i love dreaming about butterflies i mean because i love them anyway I, I tend to dream about them a bit anyway but it's nice a book kind of makes you dream about them a bit more that's wonderful i never dream about the things i'm reading about I do, unfortunately, and <laughs> when I'm reading dodgy stuff, it's really, it's quite an unpleasant experience. <laughs> all right, well, um, sweet dreams to all of our readers. I hope you all dream about butterflies and, and beautiful coastlines. Uh, thank you to our guest, Patrick Barkham, whose novel, Coastlines, is out in hardback now. We will be back next month on the 14th of July, featuring Sarah Perry, the author of After Me Comes the Flood, which is a novel. Oh, she's so we'll great. She's another Norfolk-based author. Yeah, oh, great. From my neck of the woods. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to do some sort of segue segment. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how we would do that. Um, and I'm Carrie Plitt, here with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>